Hey there, and welcome to another fortnightly episode of War Starts at Midnight. I'm Chris Gallagher. And I'm Jacob Graves. On today's show, we're preparing for the arrival of Wes Anderson's Isle of Dogs with a look back at my favorite film in his canon. And my least favorite, The Darjeeling Limited. Can I convince Jake that there's even a single movie in Wes Anderson's filmography that's better than this 2007 spirit-seeking road comedy? And can I convince Chris that Darjeeling is an overlooked gem worthy of reappraisal? We've got that discussion coming up, plus some really rad recommendations for you. But first... Midnight Warriors, I apologize. I know you were expecting a review of Isle of Dogs, but I'm a dummy and didn't realize that the initial release was not going to be nationwide, but a slow uh, release out to to theater. So we are currently waiting for it to come to Houston, Baton Rouge. But uh, in the meantime, we've decided that we're going to actually take a look back at the most divisive Wes Anderson film between the two of us. And one that actually has a, a small connection in that it was co-written by Wes Anderson, Jason Schwartzman, and Roman Coppola, just like Isle of Dogs. Uh, but before we get into our review of Darjeeling Limited, we wanted to just kind of give you guys an idea of where we stand on Wes Anderson. So we wanted to run through our ranking of his films real quick. Uh, Jake, do you want to start going through, not including Isle of Dogs, because we haven't seen it yet, but the eight Wes Anderson feature-length films that we have seen, rank them from, let's let's go from the bottom up. So the bottom for me it is actually a little tough because it, I, I had Fantastic Mr. Fox last. Ooh. And then Bottle Rocket. Um, I liked Fantastic Mr. Fox, and I will say it's been uh, quite a while since I've seen it. It may move up on a rewatch. But above that, kind of my next tier, I have Royal Tenenbaums. And then above that is kind of my top tier where it's getting kind of hard to pick. Um, but where I settled on when I made my list, at number five, The Life Aquatic. At number four, Rushmore. Then it gets really tough. At number three, Grand Budapest. At two, Moonrise Kingdom. And of course, number one is the Darjeeling Limited, a fact that I did not know other people disagreed on. A lot of other people disagree on Jake. Yeah, well, a lot of other people are wrong. I don't. I don't know if everyone is going to put it at the bottom as I do, but it's it's definitely a divisive film among among his. Like, and I feel like while you know this this came sort of as a one two punch initially when it came out. You know, the the Life Aquatic was sort of mixed, uh, and then Darjeeling was was kind of the same way when it came out. I feel like the Life Aquatic has bounced back quite a bit more than Darjeeling has uh, in in the years since. But uh, let me get to my ranking. So I've got, as as we all know, I've got Darjeeling at the very bottom. And, it's, <laughs> and it is alone down there. I don't even have, have any questions. It's Darjeeling is my least favorite of Wes Anderson's films. And this is, and, and we should clarify, this is the ranking before a rewatch. This is the ranking before a rewatch. Correct. Yeah. And then I've got Bottle Rocket, which is the only film other than Darjeeling Limited that I don't think is a total masterpiece. Uh, but I really love Bottle Rocket. I think it is. I think it is underrated in a lot of ways. Um, it's it's one of those movies that I can watch it time and time and time again, and it still makes me chuckle at uh, and and gives me a few you know really solid belly laughs. Um, with, with the jokes, you know, they're, they're not, uh, they're not huge laughs, but they are consistent and they're really good. 
And then this is where things get a little weird. Like my one through six, I could almost completely interchange them depending on my mood. And I just recently, uh, a few days ago, uh, reordered a little bit. So where I'm sitting right now is number six, the life aquatic number five, moonrise kingdom, number four, fantastic. Mr. Fox, which I will let you know, Jake actually rose from six to four. Oh, wow. Uh, maybe I need to go back Rushmore, the Royal Tenenbaums, which happens to be my personal favorite. But then at number one, I've got the Grand Budapest Hotel because I think it is his best film bar none just in like it is everything Wes Anderson has ever done come together in a single piece of filmmaking. It's hard to argue that it it feels like a culminating work. It's so good. It's it's every little bit um, of his career, all the best aspects kind of pulled together into one film. And for me, it is extraordinarily rewatchable. Like it's, it's a movie that I put on quite often when I'm just like, I want to watch something, but I don't know if I'll make it through completely through a movie. And inevitably, if I put it on, I end up watching the entire thing. Is it just because you like to see cats thrown out of windows? It's not that it's It's, Ray finds is super charming. The once again, the jokes are really good, really solid and really consistent. They don't wear out. Um, it's really wonderful narrative and filmmaking. It's actually a little meatier narrative than you typically get with Wes Anderson. Um, although it's still like this whodunit where that's all sort of just the whodunit aspect of it isn't even the thing to really focus on, but he at least gives you that MacGuffin to, to hold on to, which you typically don't get with his, with his films at all. But that all being said, I still rather watch Darjeeling Limited and we can get into why, but we have to reconcile you having it at dead last and dead me last. having it at the top of the list. Yeah. Who is somebody's got to be a little mistaken there. Somebody's got to be wrong. OK, do you? I, I, it's, it's not me. It's not me either. I, I mean, I'm I'm very curious to see if someone will budge in this. I, I think we got to put it on trial. I think I think we got to I think we got to review it. All right, let's do it. Take some of these rupees and put them on this thing in front of the deity here. Is that my belt? Can I borrow it? Well, no, not right now. I was looking for that earlier. Ask first next time. Where's my passport? I got pickpocketed. My passport got stolen. Calm down. It's not stolen. No, yes it is. It's gone. No, it's not. I have it. I'll be right back. You stole my passport? Peter, where are you going? I'm gonna go pray at a different thing. I hear you're leaving early. What are you talking about? I thought we made an agreement. That's why you stole my passport? Well, no, but I think we have a chance to make this kind of a life-changing experience, and I think we need it. In other words, I don't want you to leave. He's going to have a kid in six weeks. Who? Him, Rubby. He doesn't want you to know. Rubby? Yeah, you know, Rubby. (laughs) Why does he want me to know? Because we don't trust each other. 
So very quickly for anyone who maybe either hasn't seen the Darjeeling Limited or hasn't revisited it in over a decade, because I can understand if you haven't had the urge to, um, Owen Wilson, Adrian Brody, and Jason Schwartzman play the Whitman brothers, Francis, Peter, and Jack, respectively. They haven't seen each other in a while since their father's funeral, and Francis, the oldest brother, sort of tricks is probably the wrong word, but he coerces his his two younger brothers to- Under false pretenses. Under false pretenses, exactly, to join him on a spiritual journey through India. Uh, he hasn't told them that's what they're doing, but they, they arrive and they, they meet each other on a train and realize, oh, okay, we've, we're going on the spiritual journey. And not only are we going on the spiritual journey, we have an itinerary for finding ourselves and for this, this spiritual enlightenment. It's, it's a story about brotherhood and about, uh, broken people trying to, uh, become a little less broken. And it's a very Wes Anderson film. So you've got, you've got great soundtrack great composition and uh and a pretty solid cast so jake i have two things that i'd like to ask you up up top here one is like do you consider this a perfect film or a great just a great film and two why is it your favorite of wes anderson's films uh so before i answer that i do want to ask are we including hotel chevalier in this review we sh- we will talk about Hotel Chevalier in this review. Yes. Okay. Um, in- included or not, there. Sometimes I think it's not a perfect film because I I don't understand or I didn't understand um, why um, O Champs Elysees plays over the credits. Just a bizarre bizarre choice to me. I, I wanted to hear more of the Indian music over it or something else Th- this time i did pick up that his um little music box plays oshams elysee uh-huh. but it's that sort of nitpicking hair splitting that that would be what kept me from saying it's not a perfect film okay or or just my general belief that it's hard to have a perfect film there are almost no perfect films except for double indemnity that <laughs> sure. sort of thing and we we can get into that a little later, perhaps, uh, but your favorite, why is it your favorite of Wes Anderson's films? I don't know if it's because it's the first one I saw that I truly loved. Um, that might be it, but for me, so Wes Anderson films sort of have a, you're very detached and you're watching, um, almost like Wes Anderson puppets moving around and interacting. Not that I do not enjoy that because I do, I do love the acting in Wes Anderson films. I love the, the the impartial observer status that the viewer has. But in Darjeeling Limited, particularly compared to the other seven films, except maybe Bottle Rocket, but compared to the rest, these are really vibrant, alive characters. They are fully fleshed out, more so than I, I would almost argue any any other characters. I mean, I, I think I get what you're what you're saying. You're his there is a sort of manner of not just the characters, but the even the acting in a lot of Wes Anderson films sort of. And I think maybe the, the greatest example of that or the easiest example of is have you seen his American Express commercial? Yes. So the way that the actors are acting even super Wes Anderson, if that's if that makes sense in that, mm-hmm. you know what I like? It's, it's very, uh, kind of staccato line delivery and very like, 
intentionally creaky. Like it's, it's a type of thing that doesn't feel natural, but it does feel like it fits into this dollhouse world that he's created. Mm-hmm. Uh, is that, is that sort of what you're, you, you feel like possibly, these... and there is some of that line delivery here. It's not that that's completely absent or these are, are not Wes Anderson characters at all, but it, because the cast is a little smaller than a lot of the other films could also be part of it. Yeah. We spend a lot of time with the Whitman brothers. Mm-hmm. A lot of time we get to know them, their language that they use feels very authentic and real while also having a Wes Anderson signature to them. Yeah. And it shows clear growth and arcs that some of the other movies um, have, but maybe not to the same degree. Um, I I feel it's such a strong film in that regard. Maybe I'm biased because I love road films. I mean, that legitimately could be part of it. See, for me, it feels like the last of his films that are sort of playing into that J.D. Salinger style that he had early on. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, and I think not not so much in Bottle Rocket, but the run of Rushmore through Darjeeling Limited, you know, the, there's there's a lot of have been a lot of comparisons to the characters in those films to Salinger's Glass family, which is this uh, this family that he revisits time and time again um, in his uh, in his short stories. And this kind of like. I don't know if part of my apprehension with this movie is that it feels like there's a reason why it was the last one in that maybe he needed the growth to move on to something new. Like by, by the time we get to Darjeeling limited there, there was this mounting criticism that Wes Anderson just makes the same movie over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. And there are a lot of recurring tropes and themes here. And I know like he's one of those guys that doesn't, that's not really his focus when he's writing a script, making, you know, beginning to make a movie, Um, but they are there. And so I think that that's one of the things that is, that is not held up for me as much. Like I feel like Hotel Chevalier is a really great Salinger style short story. Mm -hmm. And then, the Lutwaffe Automotive is a good but not great Salinger style short story, which I mean fits into this you know episodic uh, or vignette road film thing that that you're talking about. Um, but but on the whole, it doesn't like it. It doesn't feel maybe as fresh as some of the stuff that came before it. And then ultimately, for me, I feel like while I understand your your praise of the characters feeling like they're a little more lived in and maybe a little more real than um than a lot of the characters can be in in his films um i i don't know that that might actually be the thing that you like about it might be the thing that turns me off as well um because it feels like he's almost trying to make this slightly grittier seventies style film where he's giving us three characters and none of them are who were, were with the entire time. Like you, like you mentioned, like a lot of times he's dealing with ensembles. We're really just with these three brothers the whole time. And they're kind of terrible people and they're kind of terrible people that don't really change a lot. Um, so it, it, it you know, it feels like a lot of these seventies anti-hero sort of stories, um, that I love, but I also don't think Wes Anderson has the teeth to quite pull off 
that sort of story. And it feels like by the end, he sort of lets up a little bit and he doesn't, while I don't think they get total resolution, I do think maybe he's a little soft on them in the very end to, to have a more, an ending that feels a little happier and a little more fun than what they really deserve. I, I, I guess. Did you want to see the characters punished by the end? Did you want to see the chickens come home to roost or no, something? No, I, I didn't, I didn't necessarily want to see them punished, but I do, I, I do wish there was a little more, um, like, I mean, like for instance, the baggage being, they are leaving behind their baggage. And I know this is something mm-hmm. that Wes Anderson apparently doesn't, he doesn't like that read. Like that wasn't his intent. Then this goes back to, you know, he's, he's not so much worried with themes and all of these things initially when he's, 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 uh, focused on, on other pieces, but it still feels like there's so much, um, there's so much that's supposed to be, they did another film, another of Anderson's films would be subtext. That mm-hmm. is the text. And it is like, it works a lot of times throughout the arc of it, because like, for instance, when, when they're lost, like the train has stopped and Francis says, we still haven't located us. Yet. Yeah, I- exactly. Yeah. Wow. Wow. That works for me. Okay. Because it is like, I feel like they are commenting on, on the fact that Francis thinks he's finding enlightenment in these very obvious sort of quotes when really he oh, just, he's totally, he, he's very nearly cringeworthy in the first half. I, re- I love this country. I love the people, the smell of the city. It's like saying the very typical, almost like imperialistic read yeah, on yeah. like, I love these Brown people. It's, it's just really off putting almost a little bit and just trying to read into everything and, and viewing India as the place to find generic enlightenment. And they sort of all are like that at the beginning. Well, um, they, and, and, you know, for Peter and Jack, it's not like they, they were just sort of, they were sort of pushed into it. You know, it's not like that was their agenda. Yeah. I, I, I love that those characters are bad people, especially at the beginning. And I do too. I do too. But that, and, and that's what, that's what like by the end, I feel like he lets off of them a little bit. I'm not saying that they, they aren't worthy of having some change. And I think ultimately, like if you really look at them, those are characters that only have incremental change. Oh yeah. No, they, they don't, they don't have a a real arc as much as we experience the things that they're experiencing and I don't know. I guess Jack decides not to go to Italy. Jack decides not to go to Italy for now. Peter decides he'll love his kid. And yeah, Francis, I don't know that Francis Francis has decided to live. Yeah. He, he, he admitted, he admitted about the motorcycle wreck to his mom. I guess that's sort of his arc. Yeah. Very small. And, and I like that, but I feel like the ultimate conclusion should be a little more bittersweet than what we get where it, it feels like, like it, it, it feels like with the callback to Francis saying, you know, you want to go to the, the bar car and get drinks and have a smoke. He says the exact mm-hmm. same thing that he says to his brothers when he first smoke a cigarette up. and have a drink or whatever yeah, it is. Yeah. Um, that's like a laugh line callback sort of thing and an indicator that like, okay, they haven't changed all that much. 
but then the music comes in and it feels so happy and upbeat and it just it, it feels incongruous to me. You know, that's why that song has never sat right with me. I don't I almost don't care that it's a callback to his um his little music boxes that he has his um both in Hotel Chevalier and when his mom comes in and into the room yeah, and yeah. turns his Right. It almost because it's so French, it is a callback to Hotel Chevalier, but to me it, that song only works sort of as a callback. I don't fully understand why he made that choice. Yeah, I I it's it feels it feels off. It feels and you know honestly there are moments throughout this where the soundtrack while it's great, it's really good, does feel a little off. And I don't know, I mean I I I guess you could make the argument that like some of the kink stuff um is more like it's out of place and maybe that's the point. It it feels like it's sticking out like a sore thumb, like they are sticking out like a sore thumb as they're roaming through India. Yeah, and I guess it maybe has that imperialistic feel of imposing British music over the Indian imagery as sort of like British rule over India. Um, there, there, there could be a read on it like that, I guess, to to go along with their sort of. <laughs> if you're if you're going to take that read, then then you have to also take along with it the reappropriation of all of Satyajit Ray's music. And the and the stuff from the uh, Merchant Ivory uh, movies as well. Yeah, re- reading some reviews, a lot of people um, didn't like this for like cultural cultural appropriation reasons. I think that it is aware of what it's doing, but I I see the complaints. I understand why people would want to complain about that. Yeah, I'm I'm sort of in the same boat as you. Like I understand their complaints, but I think they're also missing what the point is that. Uh, that Schwartzman and Anderson and Coppola are trying to make by putting these buffoons who don't belong here, here. Like it's, it's not, and that's, and that's part of the like seventies anti-hero-ness of, of these three guys to me. Like, I like that. It's challenging. I don't get as much of a seventies anti-hero from them, but I do get that they're total spoiled rich kid fish out of water in this country. Well, and I, I don't mean, I don't mean like Travis Bickle. I mean more like Jack Nicholson and five easy pieces or something like that. Okay. Yeah. I see. Yeah. Just sort of, uh, not that, that kind of spoiled, uh, not in, not empathetic character, I guess. is the Yeah. Way. It, yeah. Exactly. A seventies, a seventies hero. I, I like that these three, I like that Wes Anderson chose to have these three characters go to India nominally to find spiritual enlightenment and they still live in their own world. 100% they are in their own world, probably until the incident with the the river crossing and the three kids. Um, because 10 seconds before that happens, they're pushing their luggage around with a printer on top of it in India. He doesn't even have a power converter until he gets off the train and he's pushing a printer around. But but also just before the incident happens, what is the last thing that comes out of Francis's mouth? Look at these assholes. Mm-hmm. He's judging them yeah. just before this traumatic incident. I mean, they're like, I, I think they are, you know, they're, they're hyper aware of the irony and they're hyper aware of like when um, they, you know, after that, when they go to the village and meet the father or front played by Irfan Khan and all of that, like they, they are characters who are not supposed to be there. And it's and it is the beginning of their sort of like waking up or maybe it's not even until 
really the the funeral where you then get that juxtaposed with the the story of the automotive um, no, i i disagree it it's well I, let me ask you this how did you take the read of peter's line um i didn't save mine did that work for you or not work for you it works for me for his character if that makes mm-hmm. sense yeah um, it like it's profound to him but it's not profound yeah and uh, I read some reviewers had issues with them saying mine, especially if if you're buying into the they represent some sort of colonialism and it's like they own these kids or have possession over them. I didn't take that at all. I felt like suddenly those three brothers were acting as a team to save what they probably presumed were three brothers. And they kind of all picked one to save and he didn't do it to him. That was a major issue. Um like like he he was taking it seriously he was really upset about it that's where his character growth started and it's evidenced by before the funeral even happens he's asking what was his name finally interacting with an actual indian person other than jack using sweet lime rita right um or or interacting with the um i guess the only other indian person they interact with is the um the guy with the long beard who comes and stamps their ticket yeah the chief steward the chief steward. Yeah. Because they go to India and they're all into themselves. That's the only thing that finally takes it out and starts to kind of break down those walls between them. Well, and but I, I think to so to kind of rewind to that, the criticism of I didn't save mine. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's once again, missing the point that these are very flawed characters. And this is not saying this is the world, but this is the worldview of these guys. And then you compound that with uh, Peter is this character who has been hiding from his brothers that he's expecting a son within the next month. Mm-hmm. You know, he's expecting who, to bring his clearly first child. is not ready emotionally to have. Right. And so I think, I think that's really, that's the, the spark for him. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then, you know, that, that then compounds when they go to the funeral and then we get the flashback with the um, the father's car and all of that. Did the tracking shot during the funeral, did that work for you? No, it, no, I, I no it, it feels, it feels a little out of place and it feels a little too, um, it, it feels a little too, I guess, honestly, maybe a little too Wes Anderson for its own good <sighs> there. That's uh, so for me, I really think that that works. But it's because it sort of has this floating through the whole funeral process. Like, clearly, it is not a a documentation of the funeral. But as they walk through, they see the different things. It's sort of probably the emotional feel they had going through that, leading them right up to the car where they have the the flashback to the Luftwaffe auto. Which may work if it wasn't something that we had seen time and time and time again. And, I mean, I can... You know, I I can see I can see that shot in Life Aquatic. I can see that shot in Rushmore. Mm-hmm. Um, it's and and that's that's what I'm saying is like I I guess ultimately my problem with with this film is it feels like Wes Anderson is not making a fully Wes Anderson film. Like it feels like he's trying to make someone else's film and. That's that's where it sort of gets a little because Wes Anderson is basically a genre unto himself. Yeah, no, certainly. And so to um, to be a little outside of that, 
like there's there's something that doesn't mesh because basically he has created this world where everything that he does works because you understand the uh you know everything's not a a pristine facsimile of reality but it's his own world that he's built out you're you're seeing a world through wes anderson lens or wes anderson vision yes through through the filter of the way that he constructs everything which is meticulous and and so for this story to to sort of jump in and out of that is a little can is a little bit more jarring i guess see it's so different for me because for me that shot works because so much of the movie is not seen through the wes anderson eyes so it's set up by having very real characters who we are then forced to see through the lens of a long tracking shot. And I don't feel like I'm looking at it through Wes Anderson, like, oh, this is just a stylized world that I, to me, it actually made me think about what the characters are feeling and how that shot's working for them in in the way a more traditional movie would if they chose to use a shot like that. And that might be because... At the time, I hadn't seen. I had seen Life Aquatic once, which definitely has a shot like that. If oh if no, it, not I know they one. do. But yeah. my point is, I had seen Life Aquatic once. I had seen half of Royal Tenenbaums when I was like ten, and we rented it or Ooh. whenever it came out, fourteen, whatever I was. Uh, I hadn't seen Bottle Rocket, and I hadn't seen Rushmore. Okay, so I had not as much experience with Wes Anderson the first time I saw it, yeah. and so for me, it was the shot working. It's it's a little more raw, straight to the vein. Yeah, uh, like it's that that's interesting. And and so it could be that this helped me because I, when I watched Life Aquatic, I didn't have a real idea of who Wes Anderson was. Somebody brought it to a like a movie night. Yeah. Um, and like I said, half a Royal Tenenbaum and that's it. So I didn't know. I, I knew like, oh, he's the guy who does the slow motion. But, but that but that moment still worked for you this time around. Like, it, oh, yeah. it still works for you, even knowing more of his canon. I'll tell you this. The. Slow motion shot at the end of Hotel Chevalier with yeah. the naked Natalie Portman yeah, um, doesn't work for me as well as the rest of the slow motion shots in the, in the, in the film. That works for me. I think that one does work I, for you. I, yeah. And let, let's talk about Hotel Chevalier for a little bit. Mm-hmm. I think Hotel Chevalier as a standalone independent piece is, is more concise and much better than Darjeeling Limited, which I know is unfair because, you know, we're comparing what, 12 minutes to an entire, mm-hmm. you know, 95 minute film or whatever, 91 minute. I think, I think it's fairly short. I, I love the way it's constructed. Is, isn't it a, is a, a beautiful little film? It's, it, it's a little jarring though, to be perfectly honest. Like, and I'm, and I'm fine with that. Like, and he's, he is jarring, a lot, but I mean, the, the very first time I remember seeing it in theaters and, and when it mm-hmm. gets to the flashback, uh, at the the automotive place, I was like, "Where are we? What is, we're we're like over mm-hmm. an hour into this movie, and we're we're now wow, what's what is going on?" Mm-hmm. Um, it's uh, you know, I I think he is he's putting his own little spin on the you know, like you said, the 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 road film narrative, mm-hmm. um, sort of genre. Um, I I think the for me the optimum way to watch this is to watch Hotel Chevalier separately from the Darjeeling limited. I watch it, go eat dinner, come back. <laughs> yeah. Or watch it. And then, and then in a day or two, come back, like knowing that they exist together, but not watching them from start to finish. Like I, I, 
enjoyed watch and I intentionally did that this time. I enjoyed watching the Darjeeling Limited more this time, I think partially because it didn't have an extra 12 minutes tacked onto it. And so it was a little more breezy. Um, and, and I don't think you need that context of them butted up to each other. What, what I liked about it, they, I do think they work together, but I think part of the reason it's separate is it's difficult to place it at the right spot in the film. Um, so you almost have to just do it first, do it separate because it is part of that universe. Cause it's that story that he's writing at the end of the movie. Well, and it's, it's context, it's, it's context for Jack and it has to come at the beginning. It absolutely has to come at the beginning. Oh yeah. And, and because it sets it up, but I think to just put it at the start of your film would be so dramatically different that you couldn't call it part of the Darjeeling limited. And it's not because that's the story of the three brothers. Here's how I plan to approach it in the future. I, so I did, I did a bit of preparation that was way overboard for, for this review. You know, this, um, I rewatched the entire Antoine Dwinell, uh, adventures series. I'm so, so jealous. I'm, I'm so jealous. I wish I had the time to do that before this. So the 400 blows, Anton and Colette stolen kisses, bed and board and love on the run. I love bed and board. So four feature films and one short film, Anton and Colette. Um, and they're, if, for those who don't know, it's about, uh, this same character, Antoine Dwinell, um, first appears in foreign blows. I think he's like 14, 13, 14 years old. And then Truffaut continued to make movies, uh, with this character for the next, I mean, I think foreign blows was 59, I think. And, uh, love on the run was 79. So over the next 20 years makes four additional films with him. And Jason um, Schwartzman was in all of those. And Jason Schwartzman was in all of them. <laughs> Jean-Pierre Ledoux, um, I think is his name. Um, uh, Antoine plays, Duanel. Yes. Antoine, Antoine Duanel. Duanel. <laughs> I love that bit. Yeah. Um, and I, I watched all of them just because I remember when I saw, and I probably, I don't think I've seen Love on the Run since I, the Darjeeling Limited. So it's been over a decade. Uh, and I remember watching Darjeeling Limited in the theater and thinking like, Oh, Jack's Jack's just Antoine Dwinell in Love on the Run because of I the want whole that stewardess because of the whole thing. Well, no, not not that, but there is there is that. Uh, actually, let me let me get to that in a second. Um, <laughs> but in in the him him saying, oh no, well it's it's fictional. It's like, oh yeah, that, yeah, like that. He has basically that exact encounter on a train with Colette, his former mm-hmm. love interest. Um, but I actually think. That and I don't think she she ever does she ever have an actual name Natalie Portman's character I don't think so I think she's just Jack's ex girlfriend, uh, but I I would argue that she's more Antoine Dwinell than Jack is because she's she's sort of she's a little more aggressive she's a little more uh she's she's the male in that relationship really. She dominates everything. She dominates mm-hmm. Jack. Oh, and, for sure. And that's sort of, I mean, Antoine Donnell is a very, like, he's he's a man who uh, loves women and is, which is another Truffaut film. Um, <laughs> a very good one. And uh, a, a man who is constantly obsessing over, over women, uh, but in a very, like, sort of strange domineering way at times. Um, so I, I think... Really, and I don't know. I know, um, 
I know he's cited, you know, throughout his career, Truffaut as, as an influence on several things, um, a, a huge influence on Moon, Moonrise Kingdom, but I don't know if that was an intentional thing, uh, with, with Darjeeling Limited or just, just a mere coincidence. Yes, it was to- intentional. There's multiple direct quotes and he looks like Antoine Doinel. He doesn't, he doesn't look like him. He doesn't look like him at uh, all. I guess the haircut a little bit. Maybe a little, but not, not really. No, I don't think so. Um, but my, my point is that, uh, I think the, that Hotel Chevalier and Dirging Limited should be consumed the same way that, uh, that the Antoine Dwinelle film should be consumed. And that's, you know, you watch one, you give it some space, you watch another one, you can watch them, you know, as, as needed. It doesn't have to be a budded back to back to back. Um, it doesn't have to be a Marvel marathon of 31 hours of, of movies um, there. And, and the space actually helps a bit because there is a relationship there, but it doesn't have to be airtight. Yes. See the, the, the thing I think is most interesting is you described the two parts of the Dar- of Darjeeling limited that are most Salinger esque as being uh, hotel Chevalier and Luftwaffe auto, both of which are the two short stories that Jack is writing. I I almost think those are the most Wes Anderson part of these because he is doing his Salinger thing at a full level 10 in those two films. He's going all out. That's what they are. I guess my thing is more that I have Salinger fatigue at this point. Like, I think he's done Salinger better. But I mean, you can't really follow up the Royal Tenenbaums with any more Salinger references. Um I mean, that's really like he, he packed them all in there. There's, and there's a little bit of, um, there's a little bit of stuff in, in the life aquatic, but it's not nearly as strong as it is here even. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's the fact that they are these short stories that feel like Salinger short stories. I mean, I think that is, it's very intentional. It just doesn't, it just doesn't work as well for me. Um, and I think, I think also comparing Hotel Chevalier and the way that that ends, and the way that there's mm-hmm. not a conclusion versus mm-hmm. the way that Darjeeling Limited appears to end. That's that's really my major criticism of Darjeeling okay. Limited is I wish it I wish it felt like Hotel Chevalier. I wish it felt a little more bittersweet at the end and, and because and that's, that's what it deserves. That's fair. So let's find some common ground. Okay. Do you think Darjeeling Limited is a is a beautiful visual film? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, Wes Anderson made it, so yes. Yeah, it it's great. The cinematography is fantastic. I love that the sets are still uh, a lot of them, especially on the train, are the symmetric sort of Wes Anderson that we're used to, but filled with so much detail. Yeah. So very much detail. Well, and you know, and, they, I'm sure you know this, but they hired you know over a hundred artists to paint all of the all of the elephants and, and, you know, all the, basically anything that you see painted on the train was hand painted by someone. Um, oh, it, it's, it's a beautiful, it's incredible. Train. And, and even the way, you know, I can, I can get really giddy about the way that they figured out that because, you know, Wes Anderson, especially up to this point was really, really, really into doing everything on track. Um, there's mm-hmm. a little bit of handheld in the life aquatic, but that's uh, marvelously, uh, uh, used as a way to, you know, give, give feeling. Um, but he, you know, he loves, he loves doing something on dolly track. He not so much steady cam and, but on a train, you can't lay dolly track. It's, it's so Mm -hmm. small. So, um, they actually 
ended up figuring out that they, I don't know if they installed this beam or if they just, there was a beam basically at the top of the cars that they could attach the camera to. Oh, wow. And, and so you don't see it, but the camera is actually attached to the, to the roof. Hmm. And, uh, and that's how they, uh, they get the, the dolly shots essentially, uh, which is pretty brilliant. And out in the city, they don't do that as much. And also the sets are actual live, vibrant, unorganized cities compared to the rest of a lot of what Wes Anderson does. And I think I would disagree. See, I would disagree with that though. I mean, look at, look at anything in, um, the, the exteriors of, uh, the Royal Tenenbaums. Um, they're, they're shooting out in the cities. They're making, you know, they're making New York look like weird storybook seventies, New York. But if that, like it's, it's Wes Anderson's version of the seventies, New York. Um, (laughs) Yeah. I I mean, I see that, but all, but when I watch Royal Tenenbaums, um, of which I had it on earlier today, trying to catch up with as much of it as I could, it feels like he's made the city feel ordered. He's made the city feel like the grid-based city that it is. He's using the parts of the city that feel organized, and it's part of creating that storybook. But to me, it, it's compl- it's not that he's never shot outside or never shot in a city, but it's a very chaotic city that we see, or cities that we well, see. Well, because that's, that is where the Whitman brothers went. Right. But I love that juxtaposition against the order of the train, the order of everything else, the order of Hotel Chevalier, which we see right before that. Yeah. I love that juxtaposition. Even if we shouldn't see it right before it. Maybe you should. Um, so we agree, we agree it's visually very great. Do you agree the characters are really compelling? I don't think they're the most compelling Anderson characters. <sighs> All right. Um, well, we can't agree on that then. I, I like them. I like what they stand for. Um, I, I like that he took a chance in growth. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think it totally works. All right. I, I disagree. I'll... I'll I love watching them as brothers and seeing that they are essentially children. They are essentially oh, still, yeah. still still holding the same grudges any kids would have with, you know, wanting affection from the parents, uh, wanting that attention, trying. They're just trying to find their mom. Um, do you read it the same way I do as uh, Bill Murray missing the train at the beginning is um, is their father figure not being present in this movie? I don't, I mean, I, so I, from what I understand, that's sort of intended to be, he's the same sort of, he's sort of like them, um, in that, like, if, if they continue the way that they're going, they're going to end up being him in 20 years, 30 years, whatever. And I could see that read, but the way I always took it was like, that is their dad not being present in the film, so to speak. It's it's a common force. I think he, Bill Murray, was he in every Wes Anderson movie before this? Except for Bottle Rocket. Except for Bottle Rocket, right. So he is that sort of presence in the movie. We see him. We think that's going to be our guy, if you don't know any better. And then he misses the train. So he's not there for the voyage. I think he's the father figure being absent from the rest. Um, that older male who is present in the other films. Maybe. I mean, I... I buy that. I buy that read. I will say I don't think that uh, is if you're going for direct authorial intent. I don't think you would get that affirmative from Wes Anderson. No, but but he won't. He, he like you said, he didn't even say what which is like the film one hundred and one reading. Like the the baggage is baggage. 
the baggage is emotional baggage. Have you read the the Wes Anderson collection, the Matt Zoller Sites book? Mm-mm. Um, he, so he sat down and did an interview with Wes Anderson over, um, the, so the, the initial book was bottle rocket through moonrise kingdom. There's also a grand Budapest hotel standalone book out. And then Zoller sites did not do the, uh, Isle of dogs book, but there's an Isle of dogs book that just came out. And, and so he did like, basically there's an essay and then there's an interview with Wes Anderson on each film. And they're great interviews to read because like Matt Zoller sites will be like, Oh, okay. So what about this? You know, he'll, he'll lay out this huge elaborate read. And then <laughs> half the time, Wes Anderson's response is just, Hmm. <laughs> which is great. Like, it's just great. And then, and then Matt Zellersites will move on to something else uh, because he doesn't, you know, he doesn't love to, he doesn't love to dive into saying like, this is exactly what I intended to do. I think a, because that's not the type of filmmaker he is. And B um, he likes to leave it open to the audience to reach those conclusions. So I think while I'm saying that, I don't think that was his intent. I do think he allows you, he is fully willing to allow you to, have that read if that's what you want. Yeah, I, I I love that he does that. And I love any filmmaker who keeps it ambiguous with Kubrick being the pinnacle of I'm never telling you. I'm never going to tell you what I meant. If you want to find something in it, you can find it. It's my work of art. I've, it, it's severed. Authorial intent is not even relevant. You make the read. You take it and you do what you want. I'm not going to come in and say you're wrong. And I think in that way, filmmakers are sort of like a magician. You do the magic trick and then you don't comment on it. People can speculate on how it's done, but you're never going to confirm or deny. Yeah, I, I'm glad you bring up Kubrick because I think this also like early Wes Anderson, you can kind of you can feel a lot of his influences and a lot of his influence are sort of um, the the film school influences, I guess I would say, you know, like yeah. Kubrick, Scorsese, um, Truffaut, sure. Um, here, here you've got Sajid Ray, um, who's you know a little deeper, but you know, world cinema one hundred and one sort of, um, sort of guy. Um, and I, I feel like as he's gone along, he's sort of he's sprouted out like crazy. Like I think, mm-hmm. and this this may actually be the the first film that really indicates that he's blooming in a whole new direction. Um, but but certainly following. Uh, you know, Fantastic Mr. Fox, Moonrise Kingdom, and Grand Budapest Hotel, I think, just explode in in new directions. The fact that Grand Budapest Hotel is so pal pressburgery just melts my heart, and I love it. Um, but you you bring up uh, Stanley Kubrick, and and you know, I think even in in Rushmore, there's a scene where he basically he blocks it exactly like a scene from Barry Lyndon, which is something only Wes Anderson would do. And it doesn't mm-hmm. like, it doesn't play out the same. It's not played for the same purpose, but it just, um, you know, when, when he's borrowing from, from other directors, it's typically, um, him doing it because he likes the way something works and then he reappropriates it for what he needs to do. Uh, but I, I bring up Kubrick because, um, Metzler cites in his video essay for, uh, for the Darjeeling Limited, which is on the, uh, the Criterion disc, I believe. Um, in that he basically says that it's Wes Anderson's 2001, a space odyssey. How do you feel about that? As an owner of that Criterion disc who has never seen that, I want to stop recording and go watch it this minute. That's like how much I, I want to see that argument. I don't see it necessarily. I mean, he, he's on, basically on own, saying that it's, know. 
he's basically saying that is the most Wes Anderson movie Wes Anderson has made. And this is, I want to say this video essay he made in like 2010 or 2011. So, um, I mean, we weren't like, because my argument would be like, oh, well, let's look at Grand Budapest Hotel. Like that's, yeah, but, but that didn't exist. So it was the most Wes Anderson at that yeah. point. But even then I disagree. Like I, I understand his argument, but I disagree. I, I think I disagree as well, but I, I'm, I'm, I'm open to hearing it. Well, uh, ch- check it on the disc. I mean, it's like, it's maybe a 10 minute video essay. I think you can also find it on YouTube or maybe, maybe Vimeo, but, um, it's, it's solid. It's worth a watch. Um, and it, it's sort of a companion piece to, to the book. Um, but I don't, it, it's one of those, like every time that I've, I've watched it when he says, I'm like, eh, I don't, I don't know if I agree. I, I can't, I can't hop on board this one as much as I love his work. Like this is, this is one place where I'm going to have to disagree with you. So just coming back to the film, the, the main thing I, I just want to hit on for me is the feeling that this film gives me every time I watch it more. I think part of it is the other films are all, like we said, very much storybook. This is the only one, and maybe it's the music, maybe it's the sets, the location, the design, whatever it is, that puts me in a different place. Do, do you get that at all from this? Do, do you feel connected and in into this? Does this give you a unique feel among his work? I would disagree with that. Um, in that because I think he builds worlds so perfectly and so meticulously that are completely, I mean, they're, they're completely of Wes Anderson and no one else that I feel like basically every movie he's placing you in a world that is, that feels like nothing else. I'm always placed in one world, which is his headspace is how I feel. Like I get to see how he sees this. I get to see how he sees a, a hotel in the in the 40s and you know that sort yeah. of thing yeah and I feel like I'm always looking through Wes Anderson vision um, but this one for whatever reason feels like it's creating a world and it just astounds me that me and you you and I can watch the same film and and this infects my brain to where I'll walk around work on a random Tuesday whistling the some of the themes from this movie. Because it, it is so infected into me. And for you, it does nothing or turns you off. I mean, it's it's not that it turns me off. And it, it, and this is the thing is I don't hate this movie. I just think among its peers, it's definitely the lowest ranked. Um, I we were we were arguing about this a little bit earlier on on Twitter, and I said that this would be the Richie Tenenbaum if if all of his movies were were Tenenbaum children. Like it would, you know, Chaz is a genius, Margo is a genius, and then there's Richie. He's great. He's a great tennis player, but he's also not a genius. Um, he's you know, he never bloomed as a painter. He never bloomed as a painter or as a drummer or as any of the other things that he he desperately wanted to be. Um, and that's that's this movie for me. Like, I, I like it. All right. It's just it's doesn't reach that place. And, you know, part of it is, I think the the difference we have here is I love the worlds that he builds and I love the control that he you know, it's it's this control and chaos sort of butting up against each other in this in this movie and maybe that's maybe that's part of it is like you can't have control in in this environment and and telling this sort of story yeah but i i think that's the point of the movie no no no. i'm I'm saying i i agree with that but the thing that i love about wes anderson films is his control right and and 
and and and so that's the thing is it feels like he's making not quite a Wes Anderson film. Um, you know, it's it's sort of every once in a while someone will make the you know the Wes Anderson uh, Wes Anderson's take on X Men or Wes Anderson's take mm-hmm. on this or that, and they're such preposterous ideas because like. I feel like he would never, he would never in a million years accept that. No, he, he, he has no interest in doing that at all. Particularly early in his career, he, he said that, you know, he would set out to make a, like, the Life Aquatic is supposed to be sort of this send up of Jacques Cousteau, but also like this action movie. And <laughs> what it ends up being is it ends up being a Wes Anderson action movie, much, much in the same way Dangerous Men ends up being a John S. <laughs> Rad. Uh, exploitation movie or or breathless ends up being a french new wave noir film like the translation gets all mixed up everybody keeps saying like what if wes anderson bought a widescreen tv and it's like no he wouldn't buy a widescreen tv he'd be in an antique shop with some little vase that you would never even look at and come out to you and explain to you why it's actually the coolest thing in the world like this is this is actually the best thing I've ever seen ever. This vase. I don't know why you keep wanting to see what I think or what I how I would make a flat screen TV. I do not care. But my my point is that I I think for me the the fact that he is getting a little out of that world is actually a flaw for me. Not uh, not like I understand that it stands out as unique, mm-hmm. uh, but it doesn't necessarily draw me in. And and I love I love Grand Budapest Hotel. I love Moonrise. Oh, great films, and I love watching them. But it, it's seeing that the the play, the estuary between order and chaos in this movie, and these characters trying to have order and having to live with chaos and come to terms with it, and that ebb and flow between it that just does it for me. And I understand that it's divisive, but we know that sometimes when things are very divisive. It can produce strong feelings in both directions, either strong love or or in this case, not hate from you. But it's not. Yeah, it's not hate. Hate would be way too strong. This is this is a solid three and a half stars for me. But to, but, to move a Wes Anderson film down to three and a half stars. Yeah, is a strong force pulling you in the in the other direction from me. Yeah, I mean, and it's here's here's why I land on it. For me, it is a movie that I would recommend to people. I I have no problem with that. I do think like compared to other Wes Anderson movies, I don't think it's as funny. I don't think the jokes are as good um, or as or as many. I, I love I think it's one of the most quotable films. I know that Royal Tenenbaums is very quotable. I love you, but I'm going to make you in the face is like the only one that I regularly use, <laughs> which is it's hard to even find context for that one. I, I, I used it successfully the other day on Twitter. You did. You did. Um, but it's, you know, it, it's just not, it's, it's lower echelon. It's not, I'm not saying it's, it's just for Johnny's mommy or whatever the Wes Anderson <laughs> equivalent of that is. I'm not saying that. Uh, what I am saying is he's made a lot of perfect films in my opinion. And, and by to, to come back to this, um, when I try to classify something as perfect, I, I think, what did the director set out to do and how close did they come to reaching that goal and i think and that's so that's where my one through six i think wes anderson made the exact film he set out to make with my one through six ranking so you're about Uh, to tell me that he 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 didn't achieve what he was trying to achieve in darjeeling limited that's exactly what i'm saying with with the things i mean and and it's it's little things but i think i think by not making a completely wes anderson movie that's where things get a little off the rails and a little 
uh, a little wonky. He should have just embraced his inner Wes a little more. The 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 last case I'm going to make on this, which I think it's an underappreciated classic. I think it's going to get a revival at some point where people are going to watch it again, reassess it. And kind of say, watch this. This is something that one of our greatest directors did in the start of his career that is very, very unique. But the point I will say I is think that... It, I think it'll fall in the shadow of the life aquatic. You're wrong, and that's okay. You can be wrong about things. Oh. But the, the thing I, I, I think is the, the highest point maybe of the first half of his career, let's say, or, you know, so far. Yeah. I love the, let's see if we can express it without words. That tracking shot... Between truly, truly good, magical, great, yes. wonderful filmmaking. Yes. And I think it ties the whole thing together. I think that is the climax of the film for me. That is where everything comes together. That is what works the best. And that is the best part of this movie. And one of the best things he's done. It's good. It's really good. It doesn't uh, fix my problems with the film, though. I'm, I I just, I think it's going to be reassessed down the road. I'm ahead of my time and I'm okay with that. You're way ahead of your time. I'm way ahead of my time. There's going to be some contrarian down the road who programs a entire Wes Anderson retrospective who just, just hymns and haws about how everyone was wrong about Darjeeling Limited. Um, so when, when Armand White does his, uh, <laughs> Armand White loved this, by the way. Did he love this? Yeah. I went and read it the other day. Loved it. <laughs> of course he did. Oh. And, actually, and when I read that, I was like, am I wrong? I kind of I kind of feel like Armin White's review of this, though, should be like a giant praise. And then he ends it with like F minus like <laughs> some some sort of like I'm still going to be contrarian, even like like double. He's double contrarian with it. You're all wrong, but also F for another reason. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> um no, I, I mean, we'll, I guess we'll see. I just, I, I find it really hard to, to believe that it will make its way. Like, I, I think it's, I think it will be looked at as a gym, but not, you know, compared to everything else, it'll be, you know, when someone says my favorite Wes Anderson film is the Darjeeling limited, everyone's going to snicker a little bit and be like, Oh, that's cute. Like you're saying that because no one else will say it. Chris, I love you, but I'm going to mace you in the face. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so uh, let me let me just ask this: Have I convinced you at all that uh, what was your what was your number two Moonrise? It was Moonrise Kingdom. Have I convinced you at all that Moonrise qualifies at least as a contender for that number one spot? No, no. Like, and here's the thing: I'm kind of like you. The top tier is very very close, and I really yep. love those other movies as well. Um, especially between Darjeeling, Moonrise, and Grand Budapest. That's the ones that are just neck and neck for me. And I don't think you've made Moonrise, or you you haven't made Darjeeling Limited lose any ground. Yeah, I, this wasn't a this wasn't a debate about about Moonrise being better. It was a debate about can I find cracks in Darjeeling for you? It, it sounds it's like tough when when you love a movie, you don't think rationally about it sometimes. And when it's one you can just pop in on an evening and suddenly find yourself an hour and a half into it, it it's hard for somebody to convince you that that needs to be lower on your Jake, list. Jake. Yes. Maybe maybe you shouldn't meet Darjeeling Limited in Italy. You You're wrong. I will be going to Italy, but let me ask you, what was your number 7? Was it Bottle Rocket? It was Bottle Rocket. Have I convinced you that maybe this belongs above Bottle Rocket? 
I think the only way you would be able to do that for me is if you convinced me that there are far more great jokes in this movie than <laughs> I than I. It's found. funny, but it's more than a comedy, Chris. I it's- I understand that, but I but I mean I from I mean because Bottle Rocket's the only other one that's not a five stars out of five stars for mm-hmm. me, but it's at four. But it's also a debut film, and it's also like stands out in a lot of ways as not quite like. Rushmore feels like the first Wes Anderson, mm-hmm. you know, film, whereas Bottle Rocket still it it has a little bit of that quirky indie feel to it. It's his only film that's not two, three, five to one Panavision. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it has some things that don't quite fit into the boxes yet. Yeah, he was playing um, in college. He wasn't at the pros yet. He's yeah, he's he's learning. Um, but it's still like it's. It's a movie and it's and here's the other thing is Bottle Rocket is a movie that each time I watch it, I like it more, whereas I feel like I've almost run out of steam on Darjeeling. Um, I liked it more this last time around than I but recalled. Maybe it'll grow, but not in a way that made me not in a way that I could put it on like I can put on uh, the Grand Budapest Hotel or Moonrise Kingdom or Fantastic Mr. Fox. Um, those are, I mean, those are movies that I could literally watch any, any time and like it's, and, and maybe it's a subject matter as well. I mean, that's fair, but, um, yeah, it's, it's still going to sit there at the bottom. I, I apologize. You tried. <laughs> I, I appreciate your arguments, but, um, yeah, I, I can't, I can't budge. Well, for now we're going to have to agree to disagree, okay. but one day you're going to rewatch this and maybe you'll have an different opinion but when you do sit down and rewatch it what are you going to recommend to yourself to drink uh so the beer that i've chosen to pair with the darjeeling limited it's uh i wasn't sure exactly how to approach this one uh but where i went was i i selected a beer that i like that i uh you know i think it's a solid beer uh and it comes from a brewery that i i really love but it's not like it feels sort of like a, it still falls in the shadow of another of their beers. So let me explain. This is Alpha Hive by Coupale Works in Oklahoma City. Um, and this is an IPA, double IPA, coming in at 9.1% ABV and 100 IBU. Now, if that sounds familiar coming from Coop, that's because they also make an Imperial IPA uh, called the F5, which is basically this beer. Um, but this beer has a little more added on top of it. They describe it as a double IPA infused with a fierce American hop profile and a delicate bee crafted orange blossom honey from Northern California. Uh, so it's, it's basically an F5 with a little sweet honey on top of it. And to be perfectly honest, and I know F5 is not a beer for everyone, just like Wes Anderson movies are not movies for everyone. Uh, it's, it's a very, uh, abrasive sort of IPA. Um, but I really happen to love it and I think it's super well balanced and it's basically perfect for that extreme West coast hop heavy style, uh, because it, it still has a nice, a nice multi backbone that you may not, honestly, if, if you're not into super bitter stuff and you're not in IPAs, you're going to think I'm crazy if you try this. Um, and, 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 and say this, but trust me, it's there. My issue with alpha hive 
is that I feel like it adds on to a beer that's already basically perfect for me um, and adds just a little bit of, you know, extra that I don't really need. So do I like it? Yes. Will I drink it? Absolutely. But if I've got a can of Alpha Hive and a can of F5 sitting there next to each other, it's F5 that I'm going to pick every time. And that's sort of how I feel about Darjeeling Limited compared to any other Wes Anderson film. So when you sit down to rewatch and reassess Darjeeling Limited to tell us uh, ultimately who you side with, I recommend you do it with an Alpha Hive double IPA from Coop Ale Works. Well, I, I appreciate you recommending a, a second best beer. <laughs> that's, I mean, that's, uh, yeah, that's, I, I wouldn't call it second best. It's just, it's not my, it's not my favorite. It's not my preference. <sighs> All right. Well, the Darjeeling Limited is currently available to rent or purchase from all impeccable purveyors of motion pictures, or you can pick it up on a beautiful Criterion Collection Blu-ray. If you've seen it, tell us who's right at hello at warstartsmidnight.com. Or if email isn't your thing, we'd still love to hear from you. Ring the red phone and leave us a voicemail at 484-424-6362. That's 484-4CINEMA. Stick around for our really rad recommendations coming up next. Jake, it is really rad recommendation time once again. And I know you like to do tie-ins. Do you have a tie-in to the Darjeeling Limited for your recommendation this time? Um, yes. I, I, I thought about recommending... I, I knew I wanted to recommend a Satajit Ray or Satajit Rai. I don't know exactly how you say it. Film. And you had had me watch uh, The Big City before. Yeah, I love The Big City which I really like absolutely go and watch the big city, but I had seen it and I wanted to do some more homework this time. So I watched, um, it's listed on Filmstruck as the Holy man. It's also Maha Purush. I've seen it listed as let's just call um, it the Holy man. Uh, but I want to sound wrong on microphone. So the Holy man okay. is, is a film about, uh, a Baba. So like a guru sort of, um, guy who develops a following, and um, convinces a man and his daughter to follow him. And the daughter um, has uh, someone has a uh, one of our main characters has a crush on the daughter and wants to save her from this holy man. And the holy man has been alive for 2000 years. He knew Socrates and Jesus and all these other people. It's a it's a comedy and it's really entertaining and it starts on a train in India. I feel like this parallels close enough that I can I can faithfully recommend this movie. 
as some as some extracurriculars. If you like Darjeeling Limited, or if you don't and you're a bad person, go and watch Satajit Rai's The Holy Man, which is available on Filmstruck, something that I now have. Two questions. A, do you know if Ray did the soundtrack for this one? Um, I believe so. Which is something I learned this week um, in in doing my my prep work. I didn't realize he wrote the music for his films. Yeah, John Carpenter is American Satajit Ray. Huh. Uh, and and then B, like, did you notice any music in it that was used in Darjeeling? Um, no, I don't think so. Okay, uh, but it had the very much the same feel. Sure, uh, of course, yeah. His right. I I love his stuff. It's great. Yeah. Oh no, it it's great. Uh, I like that John Carpenter comparison. Man, is there any good John Carpenter podcast I could be listening to, Chris? Oh, I don't know, man. I don't know either. So what do you have to recommend? Uh, I'm going to recommend a movie that I caught in the theater recently that I'm I'm hoping you can still find in theaters. If not, um, look for it on VOD when it when it hits, because it's 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 absolutely worth your time. It's my favorite film of the year so far. It's called Thoroughbreds. This is uh, the incredible directorial feature debut by writer director Corey Finley. Um, and I don't want to give too much away, but I'll just say that it is about um, uh, a couple of female friends. They're in high school or high school aged who uh, more or less make a pact to uh, murder someone. And it stars Olivia Cook and Anna Taylor Joy, who you may recognize from The Vich. Um, as, as the two friends or frenemies, or I don't, I, I don't really know how I would categorize their, their relationship. Um, and also sadly the very last performance by Anton Yelchin. And it's this sort of, it's a fantastic example of performance and editing and sound design and cinematography and basically everything in the film coming together to work perfectly in unison. Um, it's, I've been describing it to people as uh, something like if someone made a Yorgos Lanthimos film with the breezy uh, sort of delivery of a Howard Hawks screwball comedy. Why, why would you combine the good and the bad that way? It's it's all good. I, I, this is actually one I've caught the trailer for. Uh, and I am really excited to see this one. When you said Thoroughbreds, I didn't realize this was the one you were talking about. Or I would have made time last weekend to go and see this. If it's still if it's still out, definitely go see it. I like I absolutely loved it. I I've been telling myself I don't need to go see it again in the theater, um, but I might need to go see it again in the theater. It's I I haven't been able to stop thinking about it. I absolutely loved it. Um, run, don't walk. Uh, yeah, the, go see. I I don't even want to say anything more because I like I think you should just enter not knowing too much. Um, at all. I mean, the other comparison I, I could say is if, if, if you don't like the Lanthimos comparison, then what about it's sort of like funny games meets ghost world. You had me at funny games. Okay. Well, we'll, we'll, we'll make that comparison then. It's great. It's wonderful. I loved it. Um, if it doesn't make my top 10 year list of the year at the end of the year, I will be absolutely shocked if it doesn't make your top 10 then 2018 is the greatest year in the history of film perhaps all right well that's a wrap for another episode of war starts at midnight join us in another fortnight for a brand new episode of the carpenter shop our ongoing exploration of the work of director john carpenter next time we're discussing his comedic love letter to martial arts movies from 1986 big trouble in little china and keep an eye out for our isle of dogs review coming sometime in the near future once uh 
probably once it finally hits Baton Rouge. Uh, that'll be dropping probably just randomly, so uh, keep your eyes peeled. Uh, you can find us online at warstartsatmidnight.com for show notes and more, or you can say hello to me or Jake on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at WSAMPod. If you enjoy the show, rate and subscribe to it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to fine audio programming. It'll help us grow the Midnight Warrior clan, and it'll make you feel awesome. On the other hand, if you are the trolling type who simply hate listening through these credits... Go ahead and tell us everything that I or Jake got wrong about the Darjeeling Limited at hello at warstartsmidnight.com. Or if you're a narcissist who loves the sound of your own voice, you can leave a voicemail and see if we play it. Just ring that bright red telephone at 484-424-6362. The War Starts at Midnight theme song was produced by Justin Streck. And shout out to Escondido for the featured music on this week's show. Visit thebandescondido.com to hear their brand new single, You're Not Like Anybody Else. And keep an eye peeled for their new album, Warning Bells, out later this year. Thanks for listening, folks. So long, Sweet Lime. Earlier you said you watched all of the Antoine Donnell films. I did. Is Bed is Bed and Board your favorite? Bed and Board is my least favorite, Jake. Are you serious? I, I Bed am. and Board is my favorite. I am. I am it serious. Is, that's the one with the toy boats, right? That's the one with the toy boats. And had you asked me beforehand, I would say Bed and Board is probably right under 400 blows. But that is incorrect. I, I, it's been a while since I watched, but if I watch Bed and Board again, and I still love it, we might have round two okay. of the okay. of the top and bottom of the list. It's not only the one with the toy boats. It's also the one with the geisha, which is referenced in the American Express commercial. The uh, Wes Anderson directs. I know. I, I, I loved that one. I don't. And, and you're saying it's worse than the, the, the like clip show movie. No, it's definitely worse than the clip show movie because the clip show movie, which I going into it, I was like, oh, gosh, OK, well. We're getting into the clip show movie. He's actually, he's playing with convention. He's playing with like, he's, he's fully aware of what he's doing. He's not just, he's not just phoning in a clip show, uh, which surprised me, really surprised me. It's better than the clip show movie. <sighs> Look, this, this, uh, change my mind format. That, that might be a new thing. Bed and boards up next. Okay. We, we, well, once, yeah, you, you have Filmstruck now. Is that, is that what I'm yeah, understanding? Yeah. Okay. Well, they're all on there. You can watch them. Uh, if you do and you decide we, we need to do this, we might. I'm, I'm, I'm excited because that's one of my favorite film series.